Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And you're tuned into, uh, I guess, a special episode of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which we utilize the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to a bunch of other bands, most of which are non-jam bands. Because as you know by now, we love Fish. We are Fish fans. The problem with Fish fans is they get a bit myopic. They only listen to fish. They can recount all sorts of statistics. When you try to mention other bands, other shows that you went to, they kind of look at you quizzically and then want to get back to talking about some more fish. But certainly the topic of tonight's conversation, in fact, didn't like fish at all. Yeah, we um, were recording here on Friday, June 8th. Um, We were actually just getting together to chat about a couple future episodes and both of us felt pretty compelled just based off of what happened this morning. Um, lost a great one. Uh, the chef, the um, television host, the traveler, the writer, just all around inspirational figure. Raconteur. Raconteur. Modern day renaissance man, Anthony Bourdain, um, passed away early this morning um, at the age of 61. Um, as we'll kind of get into here, Dave and I are both really big travelers. We're both really huge into food. Huge into a lot of the music that Bourdain is into, um, even if he wasn't into the music that we were in, we are into. <laughs> um, but we uh, um, just kind of felt compelled to talk, share some stories, and kind of get this out here for you guys because I know that just scanning Twitter today, there's a lot of you out there that are hurting from this. Yeah, uh, certainly for sure. We know, in addition to being um, a storyteller, Arthur Globe trotting chef Bourdain he was uh he was a pretty big music fan especially uh if you read Kitchen Confidential I think he talks about some of his favorite bands sort of emanating from um the CBGB class of 1977 being uh like the Ramones the Talking Heads Blondie uh from Cleveland the Dead Boys certainly the Stooges they were a bit earlier loved the Ramones just a lot of really important New York and otherwise punk bands. So I think we'll probably end up playing some of that later. But yeah, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was uh, watching television with my daughter on the couch this morning. I think my wife had gotten up to uh, just brush her hair, use the bathroom, get ready to go to work. And then she starts calling from the other room. Holy shit. My fucking God. Holy shit. And I thought, who died? Or what happened? Yeah. And then she runs in and she like sticks her phone in my face and says, I see, I think it's on CNN's Anthony Bourdain and Dead at 61. And my response was, oh, man. Yeah, I woke up this morning to uh, my alarm. Um, oddly enough, I had a meal last night that I think Bourdain would really have approved of. I cooked, cooked up uh, yak meat burgers and um, had a friend over and we sat out on my patio and 
had a few too many beers and suffice to say I needed a second alarm this morning and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I woke up to it and um, checked my phone and first thing I saw was both BBC and CNN with the notification that obviously Jess saw as well and I kind of got up with it. I, I uh, My wife was still sleeping and I just didn't know, I didn't want her to have that type of reaction that I had where it's the first thing you see in the morning. So I kind of let her sleep a little bit longer and I woke her up and she kind of knew immediately just a look on my face that I couldn't really hide that something had happened that really affected me. Um, and uh, I kind of paused and told her what happened and she just immediately woke up then and same as Jess, basically, like all the curse words came out of her mouth <laughs> instead of mine. Um, and, you know, uh, I think as we'll get into here, I mean, I don't know exactly how this uh, whole thing's going to go, but, um, you know, I think Bourdain had a lot to do with both us individually and, and impacted our wives and impacted our marriages and the way that um, we both really kind of live our lives, um, you know, with significant others and, and in terms of travel and in terms of how we look for what really matters in this world. Yeah. Although for me, I think I know, um, I think Kitchen Confidential came out in 2000. Um, I started dating my wife in August of 2004 and actually wasn't, didn't really become familiar with Bourdain. I think I want to say, um, whenever the first, no reservations season came out, which I think might have been January of two. I think it was like oh five yeah, or oh six. I think it was early oh five. It had to be January oh five. Yeah. We were um I think we were dog sitting for her dad and stepmom, just like flipping through channels and turning the travel channel, and then there's this guy like in the jungle lying down on his back making like jokes about a penis. <laughs> thinking, All right, I can get into this. And then we watched the rest of the show. I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? This is great. He's Bourdain loved the dick joke. He was he was he was never above no, the dick never, joke. And he never needed it. I mean, the guy could have the guy knew uh, I think about one of his later episodes with um the guys from Joe Beef up in uh, uh Montreal, Montreal right? where he's where he's off on um like an ice fishing uh, little hut and they've got like an 18 course meal and he knows exactly he knows all the silverware he knows exactly what it's there for he knows all the uh, charcuterie he knows all, everything that they're doing he knows all the champagne um, but the man can tell some of the best dick jokes possible and that like dichotomy was my, one of my favorite things about him I always wanted to uh, um, you know uh, it made me think of humor in you, you, whatever you can get away with tell that joke but also have this kind of refined intellectual curiosity yeah. for the world. Um, it just balanced you out in a really great way. Just I mean, bring people together. <laughs> they really do, man. They level things <laughs> out because um, you know it's as 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 our as our favorite band noted um, uh, during my favorite one of my favorite fish shows I ever saw. It's it's all about dicks. Just really mm. all about dicks. Um, we love dicks. Yeah, I. Uh, I started watching him. I think it was 05. I was in college and I was in the college house flipping channels. And um, really at that point, I, I until my later years of college, I really didn't like the direction my life was going. And I wasn't really doing a ton of inspirational things. And I was kind of, I look back on that period kind of as like the dark ages. I, I wasn't really motivated. And I remember watching his episode on, um, uh, Vietnam, which I think is one of his very first episodes. Um, and he goes on this 
little boat ride, this rickety old boat down in the Mekong Delta. And he goes to the floating markets. Hmm. Um, I forget who he's with. He was with a guest that was on a lot of later episodes. I don't believe it was Eric Repair, but it was certainly someone who was on a lot of later episodes. Um, uh, but, but anyway, he, he, he is on this, in this floating market and there's boats that come up with like produce and, people making Vietnamese coffee in their boats and he gets a bowl of pho like in a boat and passed from one boat to the other and he eats it and he's like you can just see like the the mist rising off of the Mekong and he's just like has that that like it, he arrives at that point in a, in a boarding episode where he's just like kind of sitting back he's a little full and he's becoming contemplative and the voiceover comes in where he talks about what this particular travel experience meant. And I remember sitting there and this was, I was 20 years old. I'd never left the country before. Um, I didn't really have much of a palate beyond pizza and fried food and maybe take out Chinese. And, um, I remember watching that and being like, I got to get the fuck out of the country. I need to travel. I need to see the world. This looks like exactly what I want to, do like that just looks like what I want to do. And, you know, I won't, I won't say he was the, 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 the total catalyst for it, but I mean, he was a huge inspiration for me in terms of two years later, I was living abroad. Four years later, I was living in in Korea with my girlfriend, soon to be wife. And nine years later, my wife and I were in the Mekong Delta on a tiny little rickety boat of our own getting Vietnamese coffee passed to us in the floating markets, getting a bowl of pho passed to us and fucking riding down the Mekong Delta, eating a bowl of pho, feeling on top of the world. Like I'd, you know, reach this like symbolic accomplishment of something I'd always wanted to to do. And um, I don't know how I would have really traveled without his type of inspiration and his love for food and curiosity. He and certainly introduced lots of Asian food and particularly Vietnamese food to the masses. I mean, I think pho, which he basically says over and over, is the ultimate meal. I don't don't think he's entirely wrong about that. I mean, if he <laughs> gets people to go to areas and alleys and places where you wouldn't normally want to travel. I think to travel in cities in search of like a fantastic bowl of pho, then we're all much richer for that. Like I know my wife and I will go – seriously out of the way if we hear some place has like some really good pho. Like I remember we were uh, on a vacation. I think it was in 2009. We were in Washington, D.C. And um, this pho restaurant, which I think was actually in the same plaza where uh, Barack Obama famously got a cheeseburger and had like a camera crew follow him one day. Um, there was a restaurant called Pho 75 in Rosslyn, Virginia, which is basically right outside D.C., and we went there and we're probably to this day, maybe the best bowl of pho I've had so much. We actually went there twice on the same trip. I think that pho restaurant, they also have a branch of it in Philadelphia. It's extremely good. I mean, that was kind of a strange habit we'd gotten into that if we were on vacation and we really, really liked the restaurant, we had a few days, we wouldn't hesitate to go to it twice. Like I know, um, when we went in 2004, we did a trip to Charleston, North Carolina, that restaurant uh, there, our butcher in the bee. We liked it so much. We went there twice on the same trip. Um, just in terms of travel in general, I mean, my wife and I both agree that we much prefer to go to cities than go to like tropical locales and lounge on the beach. Cause for both of us, that gets boring after two hours and we just want to go 
We just want to go back inside. We're all about cities. We kind of plan out like how much can we eat in one day? How much can we sleep in one day <laughs> without completely falling over ourselves? We'll have breakfast and lunch. Then there'll be pre-dinner and then dinner and then post-dinner. And, you know, we kind of ask ourselves, what would Bourdain do? If he was Anthony Bourdain was in a certain city, he had 72, like, like three days, 72 hours to kill. How would he attack this? What would he see? Um, how would he steer clear of the tourist spots? Not that there's anything wrong with tourist spots, but, you know, sometimes you want to get down to the nitty gritty. Like I know we're going, actually, as it turns out, we're doing a small vacation to Chicago um, for three days starting Sunday. We've already kind of mapped it out, some places that we've hit in the past. Um, even in the Chicago episode, he went to this kind of like uh, – all-day cafeteria place in the Hyde Park neighborhood called Valois that we had planned on going to because that's a neighborhood we haven't been to. Like we just went back and watched the Chicago episode and saw that he was there and like, all right, maybe we'll, this, this spot's good enough for Obama and good enough for Berdan, certainly good enough for us. So we're we're probably going to go there, but just, um, I mean, in addition to travel, I mean, everything that you see now in terms of, the well-cultured celebrity chef, like the David Changs and his Momofuku empire guys like Danny Bowen. And um, what's uh, his restaurant chain? Uh, was it mission Chinese food? Even when you turn in like an episode of billions and you see like the director, writer, Brian Koppelman has guys like Ivan Orkin from uh, Ivan Raman, like Wiley Dufresne on TV. None of this would have happened without Anthony Bourdain. I mean, he was the one, who kind of broke the door down and made it possible, made it fashionable and made it interesting above all else. Well, I mean, he did what he did. And for me, uh, probably my favorite book of his, I mean, Kitchen Confidential kind of sits on a level of its own, but I am a huge devoted fan of the book, A Cook's Tour. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, that book, what it does is it writes with such empathy while also like um, – uh, lack of patience. Like he balances this so well for people that aren't willing to try pig's feet for people that aren't willing to try, you know, the nasty bits of animals for people that aren't willing to accept that, um, you know, the way that Mexican food is prepared in Mexico is nothing like what Mexican food is prepared here. And to act as though it's okay to just eat a certain culture's food that's been bastardized and think that you're eating that, um, you know, he, he was so totally opposed to all to that. Uh, but he, he wrote in that book in such a way that it was such a great leveler. It made you feel as though, well, I could go out and I could, you know, try this food now because, you know, he, he made it sound as appealing as he did. And he equates, you know, street food to experiences he's had at the French laundry. Um, and, you know, he really, I don't know. He was just he 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 brought like you said he brought food to the masses in a way that elevates the quiz elevates cuisines but also makes food more accessible. Um, just wanted to say um, with the French Laundry being um, the crazy Thomas Keller restaurant out in uh, out in Yountville, California. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, to your point about like what would Bourdain do when you travel? I mean, I went to Nashville back in August. I had a about a two week break between jobs and. I was visiting a close friend of ours and one of our favorite restaurants in the country 
who I think is getting his second shot out in a row, uh, maybe in reverse order now. Um, if you're going to Nashville for the fish shows this uh, this fall and you're not going to the Butcher and the Bee, um, you'll hear about it from me. You should have a net thrown over you. <laughs> um, Let fish play the line every song that's set. Uh, <laughs> you don't go to Butcher. But I, I visited him and – Brian and I cooked together during my only stint in fine dining back in 2011, 2012 um, in Portland. And uh, I texted him before. He was like, so what do you want to do here? And um, I was like, just give me a boarding experience. And he was like, I can do that. And I was there for three days and we had, uh, I think, 12 to 14 meals. It was the same thing you were talking about. That's what you got it too. Yeah, it was like, it was, we woke up, we went and got like a pastry, nice little spot, went and got like, like went to Arnold's and got, you know, uh, uh, some sort of like a brunch and then went and got like, you know, hot chicken and then went and got, you know, a fried bologna sandwich downtown and then went out for a late night, you know, uh, meal at, at the treehouse And we capped it all off with a, like just massive course after course after course from butchering the B meal where he treated me like I was a fucking celebrity just for being in town. It was the coolest, one of the coolest experiences of my life. And, you know, it had that feel of, you know, being in like your own Bourdain episode because there I am with Weaver who knows everyone in Nashville, who knows all the restaurants, who's introducing me to it, who's answering questions about, you know, locally sourced food here and what these trends are and why this neighborhood is the way it is and what's happening here to, you know, populations in Nashville that are being gentrified. I mean, it was it was amazing. It was exactly, you know, what I, what a dream would have been, uh, uh, you know, to travel like that. And, and I had many experiences like that and I attest them all to, you know, uh, real energy and real, you know, um, overall kind of just passion for life that, that Bourdain passed down. Um, I, I want to ask you a, a question, Dave, um, you know, one thing I've I've often thought about watching Bourdain episodes is like so one of one of my favorite things about his his show is he he would go to places that I would see the name of the city or the region and I'd be like eh, I don't know if I need to watch this and then I'd I'd watch it because I'd get through everything else and I would learn so much and I think immediately of his episode on Houston where he spends the first five minutes. Um, reciting a bunch of stereotypes that you think that Texans have towards the rest of the world. And he stops and he says, are these the feelings of the population in Houston? No, they're my opinions before I came to Houston. And, you know, he just flips it on you and then he shows you this incredible episode about this diversity in Houston. But one episode that, that I think was in that same season of Parts Unknown was when he goes to the Mississippi Delta. And he goes like backwoods Alabama and he goes to these like tiny little podunk towns. And it reminded me of trips I used to take up to Wisconsin when I lived in Chicago and finding tiny little Northwoods bars and Northwoods restaurants that, you know, from afar don't seem like, um, you know, the, the type of place that you really go out of your way for, but they end up being like the best spots that you could ever eat at. And they, they feel so much like that culture that where, where you're traveling. Um, is there any experience that you've had of being in a place that you never really expected to find like a total gem and you ended up finding something that, you know, was kind of on par with what he would find? Um, hmm. I would have to think about that because nothing immediately comes to mind. I'm sure that if I had a little extra time to go back and give it some thought, then yes. Um, 
I know often when we go, we kind of plan things out in advance. And what we, the one thing that we always do like to do, though, uh, I think one thing we got from him is that we're always very big on asking the locals. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, we uh, were in Dublin, Ireland, about one year ago, and we waited, um, ate at a wine bar. This place called Forest and Marcy that I think was probably the best meal I've had in five years. And we just told the bartenders and the chef, like, you know, this is the kind of food that we love to eat. Thank you for one of the best meals you've ever had. Now, you guys are the locals. You live here. If you were like us, we're going to only be here for like another two days. Where would you go? And they were absolutely thrilled to give us like a pretty sizable list of places that like we should check out. Because obviously they're around this good food. They know what they like to eat. They know what's good. So then they directed us to a place uh, called Lox, which um, the main meal was very, very good. And it was incredible dessert. Just like, my God, the pastry chef, he's on Instagram. I think his name is like Andy Lox Terrace or something. It was probably, it was almost too pretty to eat. And I ate it and it was delicious. And then, of course, we told the owners, you know, um, we're here from the United States. We've got a few days. We hadn't heard of this place, but the owner and bartender at Forrest and Marcy told us to go. And we said, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. And they thought that was just awesome. Because really, the people who will know the best places to go are the bartenders and the chefs. Like knock off their shifts at midnight and they still want some place to go. So that's really, you know, I mean, you can... Yelp can be useful if you're on the highway and you got like an exit rest stop and you got to like figure out some place to go. But if you really want to be able to eat what the people who are get paid to make your food and make it good, you know, you've really, you got to ask the locals. And I think more often than not, they'll really be thrilled to tell you where to go. It's so, funny you, you, you mentioned that with, with Dublin because he had a really big impact for me with Dublin. I, I, my last job, I was working with college students who were traveling abroad for kind of internships throughout college. And um, it's kind of a dream job of sorts for me coming off of two years of traveling and living abroad and, um, you know, really make trying to make an impact on students' lives. And I got to go to Dublin for two weeks. We had about a group of about 100 people, 100 students arrive over a two week period in time. And I was there to kind of help guide them through the city. And I'd never been to Dublin. I'd never had any interest in going to England or Ireland. I just two places that for a long time felt inessential. I really, for a long, long time and total ignorance here, I'll, I'll totally admit it. Um, for me, traveling was being in a place that was complete opposite of your home and being so uncomfortable and having no understanding of, um, like no, no context for where you were and having to like dig your way out of that. And I was obsessed with that. That's why I lived in Asia for so long. Um, but I went to Ireland cause I wasn't going to pass up an international work trip and I was blown away and it's become one of my favorite cities. Um, it's a phenomenal city. It really is. And city. you know, the people are incredibly friendly. There's something super charming about being in a place where you don't have to worry about the language barrier, but the architecture, the culture, the pace of life is totally different. And one thing that and what they consider to be Guinness is far different than what most Americans consider to be Guinness. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I know. And he – I watched – like you, I watched one of his episodes from Dublin 
and I found a couple places, the Winding Stair, the Long Hall, I think is what it's called, one of the best pubs I've ever been to. But then I took the approach that you did. I asked um, a lo- locals at like a place I was getting an Irish breakfast one morning, where do I go to hear music that's not in Temple Bar? And they kind of gave me directions on the napkin to get to this little bar called the Cobblestone that I ended up going to five nights in a row because it was just, it was perfect. I walked in and like there was traditional Irish music playing. There were people hanging out at the bars. It just had that feel of a local little spot. It was incredibly you charming. You told me to go to Cobblestone. Guinness was incredible. Yeah. It, yeah. It did. We yeah, went during yeah, the I mean, day. So we heard the band rehearsing. We didn't hear them like getting down because it was like four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that place was like it was. It was a walk through. Um, it was a walk away from everything, and I found that was one of the things I learned from him. And my wife and I tried to take in as much as we could um, when we were traveling through Southeast Asia. Was if you were trying to find something. And, and we we found in Saigon the lunch lady that he made famous in one of his early episodes right. in Saigon, um, and uh, it took us like f- like two hours to find her because she's like down this random alley. There's no Google Maps to her, no tourist book tells you where to go. Like I think it's I so was hard reading to find that her. Actually, there's a sign like a paper sign written in English. Find her at this point, just there because is. of popularity. Yeah. But it was one of those things like we were both starving. We were both thinking about giving up because, you know, you're waiting, you're, you're utilizing a couple of days in the city just wandering. And I found myself being like, no, nah, just stop, look around. What do I see? Like, because it, it looked like normal American city, but it was Vietnam. And that's where I started to notice the true cultural differences. And, you know, but also, the similarities, the fact that there were, you know, people just picking their kids up from school and, you know, getting groceries into their house and getting home from work and seeing their loved one after a day of work. And it was these just like little basic moments that just really reinforces the whole humanity of things and makes you realize how much more similar we are than we are different. And, you know, then we ended up at the lunch lady stand and it was one of the best meals I had when I was traveling. But like, had it not been for that hour and a half, two hours of wandering around Saigon, wondering where we were, almost getting into a fight, and then like reaching this point of kind of bliss, I, I don't know if it would have meant as much. And you talked about just now, um, you know, seeing people picking up kids from school, just engaging in, you know, the same parts of life that we take for granted here. And I think that the thing about you know, Anthony Bourdain and his television and his books that I will absolutely miss most, especially in the day and age that we find ourselves in, is the sheer amount of empathy he had for people across the globe. Right, right. And that he was, you know, opened up your living room to just other cultures, other people, all united by the same things, being food, being family, being their traditions. And, you know, he kind of showed... Americans that it's really okay not to be scared of other people around the globe, totally. which I fear is a complete opposite of what's happening up in like the White House right now. I mean, right now we have people in power that seem to pride themselves on knowing nothing and being ugly Americans, and he was the complete opposite of that. Well, I posted this morning, and I'll read it again because it's so pertinent. My, my favorite quote from him is, and I think this ties in exactly what you're talking about right now. 
you know, maybe that's enlightenment enough to know that there's no final resting place of the mind, no moment of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise and how far I have yet to go. And that to me, I remember the first time I heard him say that it was right as we were, Susie and I were getting ready to travel around Southeast Asia and we've been doing months and months of preparation. And, you know, it's this kind of, unless you dedicate your life to it, like someone like Bourdain did, um, it's kind of a one and done thing. Like not a lot of people don't get to do what we did. We're incredibly blessed and fortunate to have had time in our mid to late twenties after we found each other and got married to travel and see as much of the world as we did with total inhibition. But you know that unless a job comes out of it, like that's it, that's the one time you're doing that. We haven't done anything like that since. And so I put a lot of, we were putting a lot of pressure on ourselves to like get as much out of every day as possible. And it was realizing that the whole point of this is to realize how little you know. And that, you know, it's pretty fucking amazing just to walk around a side street, you know, small little neighborhood in the Philippines and see people who are fixing a car with, you know, Jimmy rigged, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, tools and the whole place smells like fuel and gasoline. And, you know, there are kids running around with uh, pants on and, Yet everyone seems to have like a smile on their face and, and realizing what level they're at and how much you can take away from their perspective on the world and you know how nuanced and intelligent they are in terms of the way that they're approaching life and their problems that they deal with on a day-to-day basis that relate in so many ways to ours. And to your point about where we're at right now politically, I mean, I think that's one of the things that breaks me up the most about him passing at this time is we need a voice like his, we need a voice that says, no, you don't know everything. And that's okay. Um, you don't know everything. It's okay. And it's good. It's even better than okay, because you should know everything. The second that you stop learning. That's kind of the point of why we do what we do. I mean, from a musical standpoint is I think you and I both reached a point where we were like, we know a lot about music, but like, what else can we learn from trying to see it from a different perspective? Yeah, trying to see it from a different perspective. I mean, while it's the purpose is to, you know, certainly like educate the listeners as to other things that we like and enjoy, we're still learning new stuff every day on the fly. Totally. Like forcing ourselves to know new stuff about music. I mean, heck, through you, I've learned more about fish than I probably know at any other <laughs> point in my life. So there you go. Um, but one other yeah, question I mean, I think, for you. One other question shoot. for you. Um, so, and I don't mean to put you on the spot again, but I, I have an answer to this and, and I'd okay. be curious to hear yours if you have one. This is something I've often thought about with Bourdain. Um, if there's anything that ever frustrated me about him is he would go to a place that I knew very well. And in my head, I'd be like, you got to go here. You got to fucking go here. Like it will never make sense to me that he went to Montana twice and never went to Missoula. Like never will make <clears throat> sense to me. But um, is there a restaurant that you've been to that he never featured that you would do anything to be like the person on the show to take him there. Let's see. Okay. I mean, if there's one thing that Bourdain, certainly he was a hedonist, but he reveled in stuff that was simple and well-made and with a perfect atmosphere, sometimes like an incredible 10 course meal at a place like Alinea in Chicago or 11 Madison park can be, you know, that's satisfying, but even like a simple burger and a beer can be just as satisfying. So 
he's from New York City. I live in the East Village. I don't know if he's ever been to this place, but uh, about, I'd say, a nine-minute walk from my apartment on Avenue C in 9th Street, there's a bar called Royale. And it probably serves for my money, if not the best, maybe one of the best no bullshit cheeseburgers that you can get anywhere. It's just perfectly cooked, perfect layer of cheese. You can add bacon. I think it's only $10. It's got perfectly made French fries or tater tots. They do burgers. They do chicken sandwiches. It's just perfect bar food par excellence. They've got a great porch, and it's just such an unassuming bar that could be anywhere in America. It almost feels like it could be in the Midwest. Um, There's two televisions that have sports. They aren't that intrusive. There's a jukebox that has lots of ACDC on it. It's just the kind of place you want to kick back. Sometimes me and my wife go, and we bring our daughter. It's totally cool. You could just kick back there for hours at a time and just drink and know that you're having one of the most simplest, just perfectly done cheeseburgers in all of New York. The only time I ever saw it featured on television, um, one time the former Top Chef contestant, kind of celebrity chef Richard Blaze, I think he went there once for one of his TV shows. But it's just, it's the kind of place that I almost envision being in like Wisconsin. But it's on Avenue C, and it's just perfect. And I get there maybe once every two months. That's probably not enough. So I've got a place. So I lived in the town of Chuncheon, South Korea for um, a year of my life. And then I lived in... I was hoping you were going to talk about the uh, the Davis Pub in Annapolis. Maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> that, that would have been a great... That would be a great place for him. Um, what, a, what a spot. Salt of the Earth people. We watched... Uh, was it the Astros won the uh, pennant there? That was, uh, that was a pretty fun event. Yes. Um, got to see a lot of Yankees fans cry. Um, so I lived in Chuncheon, South Korea for a year of my life. And then I lived in Osan, Korea for another year. But I traveled to Chuncheon a lot because Chuncheon, um, it, it's it's a tiny little town about 20 miles south of um, uh, the North Korean border, South Korean, North Korean border. Um it is on a lake. It's in a valley with ample hiking, and um, there's a college there. So it's it's got a really kind of westernized feel, very cool feel to it. Um, definitely an industrialized, workaholic type Korean town, as they all are, but with a little bit more charm towards the mountains that that really resonated with my wife and I. And what's famous there is a dish called dakalbi. And what dakalbi is is um, uh, uh, chicken chicken breasts that have been marinated in gochujang and um, other uh, red bean paste spices, um, garlic, onions, sesame, a little bit of ginger, um, and they they serve it to you. You sit around this massive cast iron pan. Um, so you know you're sitting there. Behind, you know, with, we're on this cast iron pan, and um, they bring out the chicken meat, and they fry it up, and they put sweet potatoes and garlic and onions and uh, cabbage, and they mix it all up together. And at the end of it, it, it caramelizes, and you get this just like really rich, spicy, just really hearty chicken 
uh, and, and veg dish that you put into lettuce wraps and you put into sesame leaves and it's fucking brilliant. I've probably eaten it like a hundred times and the only place in the world that they make it right is in Chunchon. And it's known around Korea that if you want Dakalbi, you go to Chunchon. Um, I've had it in the States, had it outside of Chunchon and it's fucking shit. Um, but at this place in Chunchon, it, Usong Dakalbi is what it's called. It's mom and pop little spot. Um, it's the most perfect food I've ever had in my entire life. It's great for drinking. It's great after a hike. It's great for hanging out with friends. I mean, it's just it, I, we went there like once a week when we lived there. Um, I would incredible. Anything. Yeah, it's fucking incredible, man. And it's like when you leave the place, you fucking smell like the, the, the goji chan and garlic and like you, you can't get it out of your clothes for like three days and you save a little bit of the meat uh, on the side and they come and they clean the cast iron and then they bring out a bunch of rice and throw it in and make a stir fry with the rest of your meat. It's literally, it has to be the best food I've ever eaten. And it kind of goes along with what you were saying about um, this, you know, your uh, Royale, is that what it's called in New York? Yeah, Royale, like Royale cheese. Yeah, yeah. Pulp fiction. Yeah, um, that like it's just peasant food. And that to me was a huge takeaway from Bourdain was the idea of peasant food and, and, and the idea of really simple cuisine. And I would do anything to have him go there. He went to Korea twice. He did some really amazing Korean things, but he never went to a Dakalbi place. And I would have killed to have seen what his thoughts were on it. And I would have killed to have seen his face, you know, that moment that he – tries the chicken right when everything is just right. And, you know, you get that. That's just beautiful from him. You know, that just like very simple, understated. So that, that would be my spot. One last story kind of uh, while I'm thinking about it. Um, back in 2013, we took a trip to Paris and Brussels, Belgium. And one of the things we did while we were in Paris was hook up with this uh, this food tour group called Paris by Mouth, which I would recommend highly for anybody going there. So this was actually, it was a cheese tour and kind of what they meant by cheese tour was the tour guide. She goes to a fromagerie and I think she probably picked out about 20 different cheeses. Like I'm just standing there. She's talking to the proprietor and picking all these cheeses and I'm thinking, holy shit, I get to try all these today. So the tour was, then we uh, went to the back room of the cheese shop and there was a bunch of wine set up. So actually what we did for the next three hours was sample 20 different cheeses and pair them all with different French wines. And that was probably the happiest day of my life. <laughs> then the next day, there was a whole bunch of leftover cheese. So we got to take the cheese with us. The next day, we took a bus, um, took the train out to Versailles, and we got a baguette. And we basically just like sat on the lawn in front of Versailles drinking wine outside and <laughs> Jesus Christ, slathering – Cheese pieces of cheese onto a baguette sitting in front of Versailles. So I think basically a piece of goat cheese slatted onto a baguette is something that's like the main reason why I could never, I mean, it's one thing to be vegetarian, but if you're a vegan, you never ever get to experience like goat cheese slatted onto a baguette, then your life is, uh, it's just less. Let's put it that way. I, I, without, without, I, I think we could keep going on this rabbit hole, but you reminded me, I mean, I, I had a day, Similar to what you did, it wasn't a tour guide, but I, I was I was a, I was in Paris in 07. and uh, shout out to one of my best friends and one of the greatest people I've ever met, Robert Bramlett. Um, he and I started out in um, uh, the south, I believe, the southeastern part of the city. We were down by the um, the Grand Mosque of Paris, and we walked up towards. 
the Louvre. You know, we just kind of hung out in the Jardines there. We got a baguette. We got some cheese. We got a bottle of wine. We just kind of chilled out, watched kind of like the afternoon fade away, just kind of chilled out there. We then spent our, we then walked all the way up to Montmartre, um, took the long way, and we ended up at this tiny little French restaurant up there and had a fucking very simple, like one of us had duck. I think the other one had um, – uh, like the fish or whatever. I mean, it was, it was just very, very simple, very, there were like three things on the menu type of thing. And it was, um, we, we wandered back towards where we were staying in the North part of town. And it was just one of those days filled with just like conversation and, um, just kind of unending type of perfect, perfect, perfect day eating simple French food. And I would, I would kill to do that over again. So we could keep going on like this for hours, but I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, certainly good friends coming together and like reminiscing about food and travel is certainly something that Bourdain would want and something that he would enjoy. And certainly um, that's what got me to go back to his books and TV shows year after year was just his ability to get people to bond over a shared love of food and culture. So I think what we're going to do now to – kind of take us out, especially because my wife is about to kick me out of Command Central here. (laughs) We're just going to put together a a small playlist and um, I think what it would have been, it's one of his favorite songs and uh, we haven't picked him out just yet, but once we do, they'll certainly be a part of uh, the Beyond the Pond Master Playlist, but certainly can promise some CBGB Class of 77 and uh, maybe some more recent stuff. So, you know, I mean, if you have similar stories about Bourdain, about food, about anything that, you know, kind of significant that he helped expand your mind, feel free to add us. We'd love to hear about it on Twitter. If we can, you know, get any kind of conversation going. That'd be awesome. I know certainly talking about it with Brian right now and talking about it with uh, other friends throughout the days and helping me. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. And yeah, we haven't compiled this play to this yet. We're going to kind of play this out just like uh tribute to Bourdain radio hour. So enjoy this music. I, I think there's going to be some stuff in here that you guys will really resonate with. Maybe some new artists that you guys learn about um, props for us as well, because uh, we don't know what it is yet, but we'll definitely post this in the show notes and um, hope you guys enjoy this. Bourdain was a, uh, he was a tremendous figure um, and uh, really, really sad to not have him in the, in the world anymore with us. It's uh, it fucking sucks, but um there's a lot of good that he he taught us all to live on with. So and on that note, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. And come back with us probably early next week when we'll join hands together and go beyond the pond.
There's a new sensation A fabulous creation A danceable solution To teenage revolution Do the strand love When you feel love It's the new age Do it on the tables Quack labels, place or mables Slow and gentle Sentimental All style served here Louis says he prefer Laissez faire us grand Tired of the tango
Osiris. <laughs> <laughs>